Well, hello again, everyone. So the session this evening is, um, is a question and answer session. And thank you um, to all the people who've put questions in the question box, um, some wonderful questions for us to explore. Um, I, I wanted to say that inner work is uh, tiring. <laughs> it makes you hungry and it makes you tired. And um, I imagine that, you know, there's a bit of weariness today. So I'm not planning to, you know, to go till 8.30 doing this um, and then have night prayer. I think we'll finish a little, a little earlier than that. Um, if I don't get to your question, we do have a couple more opportunities for this. So I'm pretty confident we can get through all the questions. Um, but just, I'll just, you know, let's just get a sense of where we're up to in terms of our energy. And when we've had enough of this bit, we can, we can have prayer and go to bed. <laughs> um, there were a, a couple of uh, more practical things to begin with. Uh, one is that um, apparently a number of people are interested in whether you can have copies of, of the talks. Um, and yes, I'll send um, a copy to Linda of, the, of my talks and uh, she'll either email or snail mail them uh, to you after the retreat. Um, the copy that that I put on the piano I'm wondering um, if you wouldn't mind if you want to read it read it in that room at, at, you know in those chairs there and, and leave it that way it doesn't might not disappear for a while at a time and more people might have a chance to to look at it so if, if that's you know that seems okay um, I'd ask you to to just read it in there and then put it back on the piano so that others get a chance as well um, and another little more practical one was someone someone's written that after a life of of, of wanting blind faith uh, as shown in the painting of the Angelus I read a great deal this is most of Joan Chittister and Thomas Merton I've seen references to Paul Tillich and Richard Raw. can you recommend books by these um I mean, and many of you will, will perhaps have recommendations as well. I, I um, of Richard Rohr, I think The Naked Now is a good place to start in terms of uh, uh, the contemplative or the, and the unitive vision of life. Um, so that's The Naked Now. And also his book Falling Upwards, Spirituality for the Second Half of Life, which probably counts for most of us. <laughs> um, uh, is also good because it talks about the the shift in you know the, our relationship to perhaps the religion of our our childhood and youth and and the shift into a more contemplative consciousness. Paul Tillich is a um, he's more of a challenging writer. His his probably his most famous book that was generally read is called The Courage to Be. Courage to Be. Um, it's not an easy read, but but I do recommend it. And another one, another author uh, that I'd recommend, um, you will have picked up from the talks that I'm a, I'm a, a reader of Rowan Williams. Um, a lot of his um, theology is a bit, a bit heavy going, but the, um, 
he gave the John Main seminar in Australia in 2001, uh, many of you will know, and the talks from that seminar became the book Silence and Honey Cakes. And that's a beautiful um, book about, um, well, it's, it's, it's about the desert mothers and fathers, the, the desert monastic tradition, but it, it, it kind of opens up that spirituality um, and some of the key the key features of that spirituality. So that might be something you'd like to, to have a look at as well. A few people have asked me if I can say something about Benedictus, um, which is the, the contemplative church that I lead in Canberra. Um, and so I, I'm happy to do that and just share a little bit about Benedictus. Um, It's an ecumenical community and when we resume this coming Saturday, uh, because we go into a bit of a recess in January, when we resume we will be five years old. So that's quite a, you know, feels like quite a milestone. Um, I started it, uh, you know, there, there are kind of different stories to tell about it, but, but a big part of it was that I had experienced on retreats like this, um, the, the, a liturgy which included meditation. And often on a retreat that, say, Father Lawrence leads, there'll be a, a Eucharistic liturgy with a meditation. That's always very powerful. And um, I, want, I, I thought, well, why can't we have that as part of a, a, a weekly practice? Um, from the beginning, the thought was that, that Benedictus would be ecumenical. So I'm ordained as an Anglican um, priest. But the contemplative just doesn't seem to want to be confined within denominational um, boundaries. And as, as this community is, is, you know, is a witness to. So it seemed um, just obvious that it would be a uh, an ecumenical community. And I spoke about it, we had the idea, and um, spoke about it with a, a friend who was another Anglican priest who was the rector of the parish, and she was very supportive of the idea. And so she offered the use of her space um, for, so that we could give it a go and see if there would be any life in it. And so we, we met on a Saturday evening because the parish had its services on the Sunday morning, so the space was free. And so we just began and we thought we'd start in at the beginning of February and we'll go through to Pentecost and see, you know, see if it's got legs. Um, and it, from the beginning, it felt like it did have legs. It wasn't big. It was, there were fewer than 20 people who started coming regularly, but they were, it was an ecumenical community from the beginning. So we have people who are, um, Catholic, Anglican, Uniting Church, Baptist, Church of Christ, Home Church, uh, no fixed address. So, um, you know, the, the whole gamut, um, which is a wonderfully enriching kind of context. Um, and so in thinking about, well, what would the shape of this be? What, what would the form of this be? We decided that we wanted a, some liturgy, so it's not like the Quakers who have the silence, but 
no liturgy, um, and it's not like, you know, how mainstream church can be, which is lots of liturgy and very little silence. Um, <laughs> so um, we we. We did want a simple liturgy, and so often I draw on the Iona materials, the Celtic um, tradition, which again predates the Reformation, so predates the, some of the divisions that we seem to have to live inside. Um, it's it's um, it's very embodied and um, creation aware a kind of liturgy, and so we just begin with simple opening responses. We have a gathering prayer. Uh, we we sing. Um, we've got some wonderful musicians who are part of the community. Um, we have one reading, one Bible reading, and then I preach on that. And then we have 15 minutes of silent meditation. And two weeks out of three, it's an evening liturgy. So after the silent meditation, we, we have some intercessory prayers. We sing again. And then we have a closing response and blessing. Every third week we have communion. So it's a Holy Communion service. and um, But we still have the 15 minutes of, of meditation as part of that. And in terms of the meditation, again, we're ecumenical with that. So I deliberately didn't want it to be um, formally part of the world community, although we're strongly connected and, and Father Lawrence has written an endorsement for Benedictus which is on our website but there are centering prayer practitioners who come to Benedictus and I say to people when they're new if they have an existing practice of meditation just to keep following their own practice but if this is new then the method I teach is is the John Main method because that's my practice and so it's what I can teach. Um, and the reason that we decided to, to only have communion um, every third week was partly because we felt that this would be an expression of church that might be more accessible to people who struggled, who had either lost touch with their you know, normal parish belonging or who had never had that. And um, a, as you know, a, a Eucharistic service can give rise to more anxiety if you feel like you're not quite sure what to do, or you know, I, I, do you you know do you want to be part of it? I mean, it can also it, it goes both ways. It can also draw someone in and be be a beautiful invitation. So I'm not saying it's always that way, but anyway, we decided that um, that we would have it every third week. I was also conscious that because we were ecumenical there may be some people who wanted to come but whose consciences within their own denomination would struggle with taking communion from me for example so I wanted people to be able to come to Benedictus at least some of the time and not have to you know not have to wrestle with that question um, as it turns out it seems totally fine and 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 nobody's you know um no bishops present, are there? <laughs> Nobody's too bothered. Um, so, um, but the other reason for, for making it um, um, the, the Eucharist only every, every third week was because that does fill up the space a bit more. Um, you know, there's more to get through just in practical terms. And, and so part of our commitment was that the service would be an hour. 
um, just an hour, and and it's on a Saturday evening, and and so the weeks we don't have have the Eucharist, it's a little easier to, <laughs> you know, we can be a bit more spacious with some of the other things. Um, so I, that's I guess focusing on some of the technicalities. Um, I guess the bigger the bigger picture sense of it is that. Um, I've, I've quoted um, in other places the, uh, the words of Jürgen Moltmann, who's a German theologian, and he says that if the gospel is to be a message of salvation, that is a, a message of healing in any given time, it has to address in a healing way the sicknesses of that time. And he, he says he feels that Luther's understanding of the freedom of the gospel, of grace, that addressed some of the sicknesses of medieval ecclesiastical society, which had become very rule-bound. Um, and he, he suggests that the Methodist, um, when the Methodist tradition evolved in the, in the 18th century, with that emphasis on the inward um, sense of, you know, the felt sense of God and the kind of my heart was inwardly warmed or inly warmed. That's a, that was a healing um, transmission of the gospel at, in the in midst of the Industrial Revolution. When people are becoming cogs in machines, you know, it's healing to hear that God is dwelling in your heart, <laughs> in your spirit, you know, and that's a, that's a healing message. And he suggests, and I, I think this is true, that contemplation is a healing, um, is, is what's needed for the healing of our time, a, a time of incessant noise and of, of, of frenetic busyness and of the clogging up of so many of our spaces. That the contemplative way is um, profoundly healing for the illnesses of our society. And so then it makes sense that when we gather on a weekly basis as a community to invite people into that space, it is going to be profoundly needed. Obviously the meditation groups are that as well, but it's not quite the same thing as a, as a weekly gathering for worship and the development of what is a parish-like community but it's not, a, it's not a normal parish community. It's, it's centred around this practice of meditation. And, and then the other piece of that is that, you know, I've been in and around church for a while, and one of the things that, that has bothered me a lot is that people can seem to spend their whole life coming to church. They can be baptised as infants, and they can go right the way through, and they can be faithful churchgoers, and yet... Not much seems to have transformed, <laughs> you know? N not much seems to have really opened out into a more life-giving um, way of being. So, and too often, I think, in the, the, our tradition has confused uh, moral conformity, conformity to certain moral norms or values, with transformation of the heart. It's conflated those two things. And at Benedictus, our attention is on how, 
how are we being a community for transformation? And so all that we do is, is um, it has that question, which doesn't mean we're serious all the time and, you know, seriously transforming each other, but it, <laughs> God forbid, um, <laughs> you know, but it does mean that we're seeking to offer opportunities for people to do the deeper journey. And, then, and that when people are doing the deeper journey and that leads into certain kinds of mess, which it always does, we don't panic about that, you know, which often a church community can because it starts to look a bit messy or whatever. So I guess that's some of the deeper um, intentions and dynamics of that. So um, I've been interviewed a couple of times about it on... Radio National in Australia on the program The Spirit of Things and there's a podcast of that and it was it has been interesting that when that happened I was contacted from people in every part of Australia saying is there something like this near us um, and and so there I think it is you know it's speaking to something and I do think it's a question that maybe a community like ours as the world community you know could be exploring how might how might expressions like this be enabled in different places? I mean, I know in that there are parishes run by contemplatives who are seeking to introduce more of that spirit into the normal into normal parish life. So that's one way that that can happen. <coughs> but this is just another another a way. Yeah. Um, I kind of feel like this would be a good time to allow for questions, but um, maybe, you know, when we're talking again on, on Thursday, if people want to talk more about this, um, I'm happy to do that. Um, you, said that you, you said that you meet on a Saturday evening. Yes. What time do you meet? Six. At 6 p.m. Mm. Six till seven. And do you find that No, no, it's a, it is a community now, so, you know, that takes time to grow, obviously, and part of the good thing about being on a Saturday night was that, that people haven't had to choose between Benedictus and a community that they might already have been part of. So, so you know, we've had quite a few people who are come to Benedictus on a Saturday night but go to their Catholic or their Uniting or their Anglican parish or whatever it is on a Sunday morning, so they're still part of that community. And then there are others for whom Benedictus is their community, it is their church. Um, and we, yeah, we, we, we have um, one of the advantages of Saturday night as opposed to Sunday morning is that we can do wine and cheese rather than tea and a dry biscuit after the service. And so, you know, so we often have wine and cheese and, and you know, people stand around and talk and there are other activities that we do. It's not just the Saturday service. We've just in the last, um, last two years, um, someone's part of the community who's a primary school teacher and we have a contemplative afternoon for primary school aged children once a month. Um, so there are different things that are now starting to grow out of, out of the space. Um, and yeah, people, people in, relate to it as, a communi as their community. And it's grown beyond 20? Yes, yeah. So now, um, now it's... Um, 
we'd average between 50 and 60 um, on a Saturday night. So, which means that when we began, and we didn't get any, um, we didn't get any financial support for it, um, but now the community is, is, you know, large enough and committed enough that, that, that I get a stipend from, because that's, most of my work is Benedictus now. Um, so, so the community is now able to, to at least, you know, partially support, support the ministry. Um, and that's, that's grown from nothing. So that's good. Yeah. Are recognised by the Anglican Church? Um, it's... <laughs> <laughs> um, sort of yes and no. Um, so, so I am licensed by the local bishop. Um, I have an, what's called an authority to officiate. Um, but... Um, but we started Benedictus sort of on, under the radar, really, and, and, and they haven't stopped it and they haven't, they haven't got in the way, but they, they also haven't really wanted to know about it. So I know, it's a bit bizarre. Um, it's a bit of a shame. Uh, but, but anyway, at least they're not getting in the way. So, <laughs> so the WCCM is recognised by the Catholic Church, not by the They don't know Um, oh, I'm not sure that's quite true. Uh, uh, um, there are, well, and for example, Rowan Williams is a patron of the world community. So, so there has been significant. They don't, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, there's plenty of Anglican parishes here, well, in Australia anyway, and, uh, in New Zealand, that, that have meditation groups that are connected. Um, I mean, I think, I think the world community has sought formal recognition through the Catholic Church because that's, that's its history, you know, and that, that's Lawrence and, and all of that. And we, we, there is in the Anglican Church a possibility for us to have something similar, a bit like any religious community, which isn't a parish, can get some kind of different form of recognition to say, you know, basically you're kosher, but we, we don't, you know, and go away. Um, <laughs> um, in the end, I didn't even pursue that with the Anglican Church because because it just felt we are really ecumenical and I, I just, it just didn't feel quite right to put ourselves under the authority of any one denomination. Um, now, the, 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 the converse difficulty with that is, well, who am I accountable to? Is, you know, I don't want to just generate a sect or anything like that. So these things are tricky because I think we're... Part of what hap has happened is that the structures that exist don't yet... haven't caught up with the shifts that are going on on the ground and so the, the, the containers we have for things don't quite reflect what the spirit is doing. Um, and I think we just perhaps need to be peaceable about that and not too anxious and try to, you know, try to discern the way and not, not burn bridges and not cut off relationships but also have a sense of integrity about your own call and and not let that be compromised either so
So it's how did the Church? Well, uh, they they possibly know even less about it. Um, just and that's just because. Um, because I wouldn't be known, you know, and, and I haven't gone door knocking on the Archbishop's door to say I'm doing this and by the way some of your people come and <laughs> um, I, I just haven't done that but but again it's not a, there's not hostility or anything um, and in fact when Lawrence was in Canberra last year the end of last year um, the Catholic Archbishop Christopher Prowse was was there and involved in the visit and Lawrence was coming to preach at Benedictus and I invited the Archbishop to come and he was doing mass somewhere else, so he wasn't able to. But but he was very warm about it. So so he does now know about it actually. So um, yeah. So I, I don't think there are issues really. It's it's more yeah. It's more just kind of finding finding a way. Yeah. So. Um, so it's two and a half hours, um, and part of part of Karina, who's the woman, the the teacher, who who whose vision it was, and who who leads that. I, I'm usually a part of it, but she leads it. Um, part of her vision is that that families are also in need of the creation of space, not just more things to do or more things to bring their kids to, but but themselves some space and so she wanted it to be a substantial enough time on a Sunday afternoon that the parents themselves also could perhaps go and have a coffee together or you know d d spend some time with a younger child or you know some of the things that that just kind of ease you know ease um family life um so it's two and a half hours, and we gather um, in a the, in a gathering circle. So they sit around on mats, and they um, create a little a candle mat, what we call a candle mat. So there are baskets that have bits of cloth and bits of stones and feathers and candles, and they spend ages creating these elaborate little setups, each one for themselves to sit sit in front of you know while they meditate and then we introduce a theme each afternoon has a theme which might be you know could be like listening or or small things or um uh, sky time or you know different different themes which organize the afternoon um, and they they invited to say share something about that we have a little meditation time it's quite short um because often we have you know it, it the, the ages range from five to twelve. So when you've got a couple of five-year-olds, you need to, um, you know, adjust. And so the meditation times quite can be quite short, but it is noticeable over the time that that they're becoming stiller and more more able to. And their parents. I mean, I know you will know this through the world community, but their parents report that they like to meditate at home. Some of them, and they they set up their candle mat at home and. Um, uh, in fact, one of the lovely stories we had very early on was a little boy who was eight, and his mother said after a few times, and he used to come home and rush around setting up his candle mat, and and uh, and his mum said that he had said to her, um, I, I can I can do this now. I can set up my candle and I can be quiet and I don't have to be anxious anymore. So that was pretty, we were pretty moved by that. And um, 
So there's that, and then then there's usually something movementy. So you know, a bit of yoga or a bit of zumba or a bit of you know something movementy. Um, a story, children's story. Um, afternoon tea which is very important um, and, and then and then craft you know some craft exercises on on the theme um, which again is a kind of just a spacious time Karina says often even at school you know there's an activity but then they're rushed through they have to you know quickly finish this or do this or get that done or get that packed away this is just a long spacious time where they can just potter away doing their different activities and the adults of us who are there, we just hang around and help them with things and you end up in all these little conversations. People, you know, they confide and they, you know, chat away. And so there's this kind of lovely, just very gentle time. And then we regather in the gathering circle and people say what they liked about the afternoon and we have a little final, final bit of silence and off they go. So they seem to love coming. and. We, I mean, over 50 children have, have, have come um, and you, our usual afternoon will be between kind of 15 and 22. So, yeah. Yeah, it's lovely. Mm. So I'm conscious of um, not keeping you all up too late. So maybe I'm really happy, as you can tell, to talk about Benedictus, <laughs> but I don't want to clog the entire airspace with it. So um, maybe later. Um, This is actually related. Um, so someone's asked about, you know, meditation brings us to a knowing of God's love for all, and therefore I find it extremely difficult participating in our Sunday liturgy where we are constantly begging for mercy, confessing sin, and asking forgiveness and saying we are unworthy. Uh, it's not that I think I do no wrong, but any tips on how to manage all the self-negation <laughs> and lack of joy in God's love would be wonderful. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really serious question. Um, there's that dimension of the liturgy that it can seem overly focused on, on our, you know, unworthiness and our sin and all of that and 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 then just the sheer wordiness of the liturgy and the the covering of all the bases and things like that and I, I think when when you do meditate and you kind of move into this different kind of sense of relatedness that does great more it, it becomes a bit harder it's hard to give up the air of yeah, and I think part of it too is the way we hear things. So, and Richard Rory's good on this that that a lot of our our religion gets ends up fairly dualistic, fairly stuck in you know um, good and bad and right and wrong and hell and heaven and all of that. Whereas actually, um, if if if, if we're on the right kind of track, um, Jesus is actually subverting that. And, and Jesus is, is drawing us into a more unitive consciousness, not a dualistic consciousness. Which doesn't mean everything's the same or, you know, it doesn't matter whether we do justice or we don't. But it's that the, the, those questions of discerning where is God in something? Where is life in something? Where is where is the way of life? Um, it's held inside a context where 
there's the possibility of redemption of all things. You know, every, everything could be reconciled. Um, and it's holding out, as Jesus does in the resurrection, he's returning to people who've betrayed him and who've denied and, um, you know, who at the vital moment <laughs> left him to his own devices. And I, part of what's critical about the resurrection is not just that Jesus relativizes death and, and reveals that death is not ultimate, but it's also the manner of his return. So it's possible, we could you know, dimly imagine, someone returning from death, showing that actually death had no power over him, as we say, but also saying, and where the hell were you? Or, you know, like returning in a vengeful way or in a, in a payback kind of way or in a holding it against you kind of way. And what's, what's so uh, profound about all of the resurrection narratives is the first thing he says is, peace be with you. So, so the return <coughs> is in order to bring people who have, in a sense, cut themselves out of life back into life. Again, and, and I get this from Rowan Williams, this doesn't mean that it's all just, oh, well, never mind about that. And, and one of the, the, the profound stories of that is the story of, of Peter and the, the threefold denial and then the threefold, do you love me? And there's that sense of Peter actually has to face up to what he did. So part of his becoming whole, part of the gift that Jesus wants to give him does involve that painful acknowledgement of the way he failed. But he's able to make that acknowledgement because it's in the context of already being accepted. It's not like acceptance is a precondition of saying the right thing. And, and we know that in our own relationships. If someone's just out to blame us, all we want to do is justify ourselves. But if someone actually kind of gets us and we know they're for us, we're much more likely to be able to say, yeah, and I really, I'm sorry about that. I stuffed that up. So, so the non-dualism isn't doesn't mean anything goes and there's no such thing as right and wrong or just and unjust anymore. But it does mean that all of that is held inside the bigger reality which is always wanting to reconcile and always wanting to draw us into wholeness and, and love. I think if we have that sense of it, then actually we do hear some of the passages in scripture that we might formally have read in a dualistic way, we can actually hear them differently. So maybe sometimes the problem isn't the scripture, it's the lens we bring to it. And sometimes as we, are, we shift into that more unitive consciousness, we, we hear something different in the texts, in the scripture. But it's also true, I think, that they're what... Um, I can't remember who said this, but talked about some of the biblical texts as texts in travail. They themselves are in the process of making that shift. 
And so you get echoes of the old way mishmashed in with, with the new way. Um, and certainly the church has been an institution making that kind of transition from, you know, from a religiosity which is we're right and all you people who are over there aren't um, or, you know, we're in and you're out and all of those, you know, that dynamic very quickly came back into the life of the Christian community. Whereas, it seems to me, the whole point of Jesus is to subvert it. There is no in and out anymore. So insofar as our liturgies partake in and perpetuate that old dualistic framework, they are sub-Christian, I would say. Then what do we do about that? <laughs> well, I, th I think, I mean, I, I, I think we just have to, we have to be on the journey ourselves. We have to keep meditating. We have to keep, you know, with this faith, with this transformation of our own consciousness. It certainly shifts how you preach. If, if you're on that journey, it shifts how you are with people in your context. It makes certain things unsayable or unthinkable. And the more that's happening among the people of God, the more other things will shift, I think. Um, it's not a very satisfactory answer in some ways, but, but I, I think we, again, the, 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 and I think people are, are called to different spots in this journey. I think there are people who are called to remain in and of the institution and somehow by their way of being and their witness, they're part of the continued growth and transformation of the institution. I think other people find themselves for a whole range of reasons on the edge or on the outside or struggling to be in and that might be their vocation, you know. So I think again, maybe it's not just a one size fits all response here but that we do need to be discerning well how am I where am I called to be um, and and you know and dare that that's a, a kind of discernment that you don't just make on your own that you do make in conversation and you know in in community um, because it's very easy for us to you know, get on our high horse and think we're being led by the Spirit of God, but really it's just my high horse kind of galloping off in the... Um, so, you know, you want to be... There's a humility about it as well. And, and a humility that recognises that for all, you know, its manifold faults and, and the ways it has at times betrayed the gospel, the church has also been what has carried the gospel and what has kept it available and what has, you know... So, so again... We need to kind of have a nuanced sense of it, I think. I was just going to say, I take my hearing aids out and just meditate. I'm still in that. I'm in the back left hand corner. And you're right about not leaving community because. They're my community, Yeah. I don't really agree with everything. Yeah, that's right. And the fact is, we're never going to agree with everyone in any community. Um, so it's not just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, that kind of sense of bumbling along together is, is actually part of it. Um, yeah. 
How does one love God? Is there an emotional side to it? I think that's a really great question. Um, I think there is, um, and because how how does one love God with one's heart, mind, and soul, and all all your strength, and all your heart, and all your mind, and all your whatever it says? Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's the whole person. It, it's the wholeness of us being drawn into and, and responding to the wholeness that is God. Sometimes, but, and, so, so that's more than our emotions. It, it, it's, it's, you know, it, it's the whole of us and our emotions are part of us, so it's, it's more than our emotions. But our emotions can be, you know, involved, very much involved. And there are times when they're not. And you, you might feel that you're not feeling anything. You know, you might feel kind of empty, yeah, or, or cold or, or like I'm hanging in, but I'm not feeling it. <laughs> Which is, you know, how people stay married as well sometimes. <laughs> they're hanging in, but they're not feeling it. You know, like it's, a, it's that saying there's... There is something that you're being true to, and and emotions can come and go, um, which doesn't mean they're not important or they're not to be taken seriously, but at the same time, nor are they the only measure of whether you're loving God. Um, and I think part of it is to do with, again, it's about, and I think this is where the contemplative can really help, because it's... It is experiential. It isn't just some dry, abstract formula out there. Yes, I believe in God the Father. It is experiential. It, it, is, it does connect with us existentially, and it needs to. But it is, a, it is a kind of a deeper connection than some, some of the fleeting, more fleeting kind of highs we might experience spiritual highs and how do we know we're connected well again it's the fruit which doesn't always mean are we doing lots of good works because that can just be a lot of moral effort rather than you know but 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 the fruit of is my is my peaceableness deepening it is my capacity to see the other, yeah, less possessively? Is that increasing? Those are some of the fruits that we're loving God. You know, you love, love your neighbour as you love God and you love God as you love your neighbour. And if that's growing in you, then you are loving God, even if at any particular moment you might not that might not be the way you'd describe it. Does that kind of... How are we going? I'll do one more and then we can... Um, and then, as I said, if I, if I haven't got to yours, I will. Um, so this one says, Your talk on Tuesday morning showed that you have an understanding of the Enneagram. 
Can you share your thoughts on how the wisdom of the Enneagram can help us on the spiritual journey, especially in light of how meditation can bring us to self-knowledge? So do most people know what the Enneagram is? Yes, more or less. So it's a, it's a, um, one way of describing it, probably a crude way of describing it, is that, but it is a kind of a, a, a taxonomy, like a kind of a way of categorising different, different personality types. And there are nine types in the Enneagram. And there are three subdivisions within the nine, and they are to do with what is the fundamental energy that you bring to the world and what is your fundamental, the way you first meet the world. And there are people who are in the headspace, who, who think the world. <laughs> there are people in the heart space and there are people in the gut space. And so the, there are three within each of those three spaces. I only discovered the Enneagram about, I don't know, four or five years ago. Um, and I found it really profoundly helpful. I think two things are really significant. One is that it is a tool for transformation. So the intention is not just to categorise yourself and then to say, right, well, that's who I am and that's who I am and you can't blame me for that because that's who I am. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it, it, you know, part of, part of the whole, um, uh, you know, part of the whole approach is that there are ways to be more or less healthy versions of your fundamental type. So the idea is, you know, you, your type doesn't change, but you can be more or less redeemed within that type. And the spiritual journey is a big part of becoming redeemed, becoming healthier. And where the Enneagram is so helpful, I think, is because it helps us get much more subtle about our concept of sin. So I think a lot of us have kind of grown up with a... A certain image of sin it's about doing bad things and you know morally transgressing and you know I'm these are these are sins and you know and if I'm doing those things I'm a sinner but if I'm managing to keep moralists on the straight and narrow then maybe I'm not such a sin you know that that kind of image of sin what the Enneagram helps us to do is to get in touch with the subtlety of our sin or alienation not just as moral transgressions of certain rules, but much more deeply as connected to these um, self-protecting, self-justifying ways of being that I talked about earlier. And different ones of us will have different strategies for that and different defaults for that depending on our type. So, for example, one of the types is a type, is number two, and, and a two is in the heart space, and the two is, is um, superficially, you know, at first glance, looks like the perfect Christian, because the two is a helper, and is always doing things for others, and is always, you know, putting themselves to one side, and um, paying attention to others' needs, and not their own needs, and all of that. It's, a, it's, it's very encouraged <laughs> in our tradition. But the subtlety is 
that very often a two might be doing that out of this desire, this, this, this need to be loved and to be needed and to be approved of. And, and all this helpfulness is, leads actually to a kind of pride and a kind of, you know, a kind of almost a, a manipulation of people around them because I do this for you and then you feel, you, you know, you respond to me in this way and, and you can get in touch with the fact that that's why, the way you're being because if they, people don't respond appropriately, you're liable to be very resentful. <laughs> and there's a, that's a sign, there's a shadow there. It's not like all your helpfulness was wrong or that it didn't help, but it, it helps you to see where the shadow might be even in what you think your virtue is. That's the key bit. We, we think we have certain virtues. They've always got a shadow, and the Enneagram can help us identify our shadow and so identify what growth, <coughs> what real growth might look like for us. Um, for me, I'm a five. I can look like a great contemplative, you know, because fives like to kind of go in and they like to be silent and they, you know, they feel overwhelmed by lots of other people so they're kind of naturally, you know, inward and reflective and all of that. And the shadow of that is I'm just not available. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping myself safe. It's my strategy for security. And I'm withholding and I'm not daring to just get out there on the court of life and be in relationship with people and with all the mess that that entails. But if I'm in a monastery and I'm being a five, I can look like a great monk and never know that, that what's going on is something actually much more subtle. So I think it is a really helpful tool in the spiritual journey because, you know, mainly for that reason. Um, all right. Let's leave it for now um, and we'll move into our, our night prayer. Maybe it would be good... You might like to just stand and stretch a little bit and kind of wiggle and <laughs> turn around.